my name is Joe Mueller. I'm one of the, the pastors here. Um, and it is my privilege to have the opportunity uh, to preach today. Um, today is going to be a little bit different as we uh, take a look at the book of Acts. Um, because we're not going to be in a single text today, really, at all. Um, which is, uh, I guess, very normal for me. Um, uh, but just wanted to make that clear at the beginning. There's not going to be uh, a single text that we're just going to sit in. Um, but we are going to be asking this bigger question, and that is, what is God doing in the book of Acts? What's his purpose? What's his plan? What is going on? And so, in order for us to ask that, or answer that question, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Because obviously you're going to start in Genesis, right? If you're going to answer what God is doing in the book of Acts. And let's pray. So God, we, uh, I need you. I pray that you would um, keep our minds uh, attuned to your word. I pray that you would um, serve us by holding our memory together. I pray that you would delight us. Uh, with the beauty of your scriptures. I pray that you would um, absolve us of our sins as we bring them before you. I pray that you would heal us of our sicknesses and of our diseases as we draw near to the God who heals. I pray that we would be bold because of what you do in our hearts, that we would stand firm knowing that you are by our side. And I pray that we would be your people and you would be to us our God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today my sermon is entitled Acts and the Story of God. And the subtitle here is Cult, Kingdom, and Cosmos. Or Cosmos, depending on your accent. So, and here is the point of my sermon. Going with the point from the very beginning. In the book of Acts, God is building his temple to fill the whole earth, all of creation, with his glory. That is God's purpose in the book of Acts. And in fact, it is my contention that this has been the goal, the aim, the end, the telos of God from the beginning, and remains the goal, the aim, the end, the telos of God today. And here we have the outline for the sermon. The first part, I will attempt to show that from our perspective, God has been building his temple, his place of adoration and worship, the place where he invites his creatures into intimacy and rest with him since the very beginning. And in order to see that, we will do a brief and, and brief in terms of scope, not necessarily in terms of time, because it will eat up most of our time together, we will do a brief survey of Genesis 1 through 3 to see what God's purpose is there. And then the second part, I'll try to show that this is what God is also doing in the book of Acts. So God is building his temple to fill the whole earth, all of creation, with his glory. And before we get into the meat of things, I'd like to take a brief aside and just explain why this sermon, why today, why am I doing this? And the first and most important is because I like talking about it, right? 
Fudd asked me to preach a sermon, and I got a pick, so this is what I'm talking about. I love talking about this topic because it is one of the most foundational points in my early adult Christian life that hit me and has stuck with me from then on, and I find that this is one of the most important and key basic foundational insights into what it means to be a Christian. And the second reason is I want, I want to be able to say, I want us all to be able to say with Jesus, when Jesus said this in John, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And that's from John fifteen nineteen. So in order to be able to say what Jesus has said, that he only does what he sees the Father doing, I need to see what the Father is doing. And that is why I want to preach this sermon today. The third reason and last is that I don't want us to lose perspective. In my life, it is so easy to get caught up in the right now, in the demands on my time, on my attention, on my feelings, on my thoughts. I mean, even good things scream to me, and I forget why I'm even doing them. I forget why they matter, and I forget what they're supposed to accomplish in this world. I get so focused on simply doing them that I lose perspective on why it even matters. And I lose perspective that even while doing good things, good things become this unbearable burden that drag me down. I simply cannot do them anymore because it becomes a law that is crushing me instead of being law that gives me life and pushes me forward. I want to talk, what I want to talk about today should be the persistent backdrop on the drama of our lives. It is a constant setting of the story that we play out day in and day out with our boring, mundane lives. This is the story that matters, and we are all players in it. And I want this to to be driven home in us today so that our energies, our efforts, our work, everything we do gets grounded in this vine so sustaining that we bear much fruit, that we abide in the love of Jesus, that we share in his eternal joy and happiness. Because it's not just about doing things. It is about going to the vine. Good works will be our fruit. The love of Christ is what we will experience through them. And the result will be our joy and happiness now and in all of eternity. So let's get into it. Our first little point here is titled Genesis, Cult, Kingdom, and Cosmos. I mentioned that I was going to show that from the beginning God has been building his temple to fill the whole earth, all of creation with his glory. So we need to start with creation because at the very dawn of existence, God has made this clear to us and he has shown us that this is his promise to his people. There are three things in Genesis that we're going to see in creation. We're going to see the creator's spirit. We're going to see man who is God's image bearer And we will see this earth-filling command that God gives. So first up is our creator's spirit. The opening lines of Genesis. Who can say it? No, I'm, I'm joking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The creation of all that is, visible and invisible. Heaven is that invisible realm, and earth is that visible um, uh, earth universe register that God creates in that first verse in Genesis 1.1. Heaven is a created reality. Earth, the universe, is a created reality. And both occupy the same space, this realm of creation that we share. Then in Genesis 1-2, we see that the presence of the glory cloud, that fiery, smoky intrusion of God into visible creation, like a finger poking through cellophane, or to use something from modern uh, pop culture, right, Stranger Things, the upside down, right, but we're in the upside down now, and God is in heaven, right, God's in the normal world, Um, the spirit He's hovering over the formless and void face of the waters. The spirit is. This, this fiery, smoky intrusion of God. And I don't think we think about that fact enough. Why is this the very first image that Moses, when writing his account of creation and of the world, why is this the first thing he presents us with? And on top of that, why does God choose to create in this way? What's his purpose? What's his point? What's his plan? And and what does it all mean that he has chosen to do this? Now, whatever the full and complete answer is, I don't know. But I think that at least one part of it is that we're going to explore that with him for all of creation, for all of eternity. We will get to contemplate and think about and ask him questions about it. And we will be amazed at why he did things the way that he did. But for today, I think part of the reason is revealed to us in Scripture. Because in Genesis 1-2, we already have the primary atmospheric and architectural features of invisible heaven, the Spirit of God, intruding into the visible register of time and space. Heaven, or to use the language of the Gospels, the kingdom of heaven has come near already in Genesis 1-2. And what is heaven but the throne city temple of God? So what, what does this mean, throne city temple? Well, the heaven is a throne room. If you look in Isaiah 6, 1-4, through 4, it says that in the year of King Uzziah, the, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up in the train of his robe, filled the temple. I'm going to skip down to verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook with the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So heaven is God's throne room. Notice too the atmosphere of heaven. It is a place filled with smoke. And smoke is a very common association with the Spirit of God. See Genesis uh, chapter 15, verse 17, Exodus 13, 21, 1 Kings 8, 10. Those all show us that the Spirit is associated with this smoke. But heaven isn't just a throne room. 
It isn't just a, a celestial palace. It is also a heavenly city. And one place we see that is Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 1 through 3 says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Heaven is a city. And notice, too, what heaven, the city of God, means. It means it's a place where God and his people dwell together. It is where he is with them as their God, and they are with him as his people. But it's not just a, a throne city. It is also a throne city temple. And we see that again in Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So heaven is a throne, a city, a temple. And notice, too, that the architecture of heaven, it is God himself. So in Genesis 1-2, we have the creation of everything visible and in invisible. And then an intrusion, an intrusion of poking in, a, a, a a diving into time and space of the throne city temple of God, that glory-filled, dwelling with men, God himself place, hovering over the visible creation, demonstrating to us visually what God is planning to do with this world. God is planning to build his temple to fill the whole earth, all of creation with his glory. And this fact should illuminate our reading of the next three chapters of Genesis, where we will see man as God's image bearer. It is particularly helpful, helpful in making sense of creational commands of God over the next 32 verses. God is building a pattern of spheres or kingdoms. He builds uh, in day one, right, of light and darkness. In day two of heaven and earth. Of day three of land and water. And then he creates inhabitants and rulers of those spheres. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars on day four. Then sea creatures and birds and then beasts. And finally men in days four through six. And then God sits as ruler enthroned in eternal kingdom rest on an eternal seventh day. In these six days of creation, God is building a place to fill with his glory. And the most special feature of this creation is us. It's humanity. We appear on the sixth day. And as Genesis 1, 26 through 27 say, we are made in the image of God. Uh, 1, 26, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, I think it means many things, but we're just going to look at three. It means that we are morally magnificent. Ephesians 4.24 teaches us this when speaking of our new creation. It tells us that we are to put on the new self, 
created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And, and this fact that we are morally magnificent makes complete sense when we think about the moral magnificence of God himself. For we just read in Isaiah 6, 3 that holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Humanity was created pure and righteous and holy. We were followers of God's law in those early days. And this means that according to Jesus in Matthew 22, 26 through 40, we loved both God and our neighbor as we ought. And that is the first element of the image. It is being morally magnificent. It is being driven and grounded in love. But being created in the image of God also means that we rule. We establish order. We have dominion. We are dominion developers. Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. The pattern of life developed by God in day 1 through 6 of work, of generating form, of giving function, is the pattern after which man is made. We were made to work and extend our dominion. We are dominion developers. We are workers. And finally... Morally magnificent dominion developing humanity was made, both male and female, to be cultic constituents in the temple of God. We were made to worship. And by cult, I mean here a particular system of religious worship with a special reference to its rites and ceremonies. Not a bad cult, but just a generic word for cult. Uh, thank you, dictionary.com, for that. Had to clear, make sure I clear that up for everyone. For, for God... He put us in a place to actually worship, right? The Garden of Eden, where God placed Adam and Eve, is a prototypical temple. It is a temple of God. Genesis 2, 8, 9 says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And skipping down to verse 9, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This this knowledge of uh, the tree of life is a key component to help us understand that Eden was a temple. That Eden was a place of worship. Because in the uh, book of Revelation, Revelation 22, in that throne city temple of God that descends, we see this. The angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. So in, in the, the temple of God that is in heaven as we speak, also contained this tree of life. And the Garden of Eden did as well. And so here we have a clear connection, a clear biblical reference at the beginning and at the end of all things that Eden is a temple and that man was there to worship. Humanity was made to serve in the temple of God, offering praise and worship as they extend the borders of the garden to the ends of the earth. Man was in the garden to work it, to cultivate it, and to extend it. The earth was going to be full of the glory of the Lord because men, humanity, 
was going to move the garden boundaries and extend them to cover the face of the world. The Garden of Eden then marks out humanity and men and women as cultic cultic constituents in the temple of God, but it also leads us to the, the third and final thing we wanted to talk about, about filling the earth. And this is the last part of what I wanted to say here, is that men were made to extend the garden over the face of the whole earth. Because in Genesis 1.28, God says, and, blessed, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's plan from the beginning was to create a temple that glory-filled, dwelling with men, God himself placed for his image bearers, who are those morally magnificent, dominion-developing, cultic constituents, and for it to fill every nook and every cranny of his creation. No part of this world is outside of the dominion of our God. It all belongs to him, and it all exists to bring him praise and worship and adoration. And so from the beginning... God has been building his temple to fill the whole earth, all of creation, with his glory. But, in Genesis 3, we learn of our first parents' primeval rebellion against God and the convulsion of creation that ensues. Things break. Man loses his moral magnificence as he breaks the law of God to go down his own way and he sets himself on the throne of Eden. Man, the worshipers in God's temple, have desecrated it. They have desecrated it with their actions and by allowing the serpent to lead. Humans ate of the one tree they were not to eat. You see that in Genesis 2, 15 through 17 and 3, 6. And they, they failed to guard the throne from the serpent. The image of God in man is then marred. And death is certain. No longer are humanity as male and female in a place where relationally they even want to fill the earth anymore. In Genesis 3, 7 it says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There is a break in the relationship between man and woman and humanity. And no longer are they in a place to serve as priests in the worship of God Most High because they fear his very presence to arrive. That's in Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The, the command of God to fill the whole earth with his temple is being abandoned by men. And so the purpose of God to build his temple and to fill the whole earth, all creation with his glory, seems like it could be in jeopardy. God's chosen agents to do so have rejected the mission, have run away, and have abandoned the law of God. So man, that, that procreating king-priest image-bearer of God, he's no longer a king. He's no longer a priest, and he's no longer someone who is pure and undefiled in the image of God. Man has fallen. But no purpose of God can be thwarted. And even the sins of his creatures will not keep back the predetermined and foreknown counsel of God. God will build his temple to fill the whole earth, all of creation, with his glory. He will make 
away. And immediately in Genesis, we see this as God appears on the scene, filling his temple with his presence. Genesis 3.8 says, And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I know that the English here doesn't really make it sound this way, but this is a clue to us that the rushing wind of God's glory glory cloud is roaring through the garden, whipping the trees back and forth. And this is not a pleasure stroll of God through the streets, right? He's not just moseying in the, in the nice part of the afternoon. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God because they were terrified, right? They were so scared of God appearing. And what does God do when he arrives? He cleanses his temple. He cleanses the moral corruption that has infiltrated its midst by pronouncing a curse of destruction on the serpent in Genesis 3.14. And he reinstates Adam and Eve as members of his congregation in Genesis 3.21. He cleanses his temple. And in his judgment on the serpent, Eve and Adam, God also reveals that his image bearers will continue on. He will not utterly destroy them as they deserve for breaking his law and desecrating his temple. Eve shall be the mother of children. And Adam even says, all the living in Genesis 3.21. And this is a pronouncement, this is a promise with a double meaning that would only be revealed to us in Christ. Eve became the the mother of all the living in Jesus. But more than a promise to simply continue... Humanity, God promises that one from the line of Adam and Eve, Jesus, will finally and utterly defeat the one Revelations 12, 9 calls that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. God does this in, in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's image bearer, humanity, will continue to bear God's image. Though it will be marred, though it will be broken, the image will remain. And one day, one day, one will come in the line of Adam who will be the faithful and true image bearer of God. And in these promises and pronouncements, God is also signaling that the broken relationships of men will be mended so that they they might fulfill their commission to fill the earth. But they will still feel the hurt of what was lost in that day in the garden. Genesis 4, 1 and 2. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Again, she bore his brother Abel. And I think we all know how this story ends. Already the enmity between the serpent and the woman will take shape as Cain, who hears the seed of the serpent in a murderous rage over the proper worship of God, ends the life of his brother Abel, the seed of the woman. The fall is felt. The image of God is marred, but the earth is being filled. But throughout Genesis and all the Old Testament, the people of God will keep looking for the seed. 
They'll keep looking forward to the law. They'll keep looking to the temple, but always end up falling short. There always will be something that will come and mar everything. We see this pattern recapitulate itself over and over and over again, where the creator spirit, the man, God's image bearing, the filling of the earth, is told over and over again in the New Testament. We'll see it in Noah, if you read the story of Noah this week, or the story of Abraham, you'll see it, or the Exodus, or national Israel. Over and over and over again, God is telling the same story, that he is building his temple to fill all of creation with his glory. And so now, finally, now that we understand this, hopefully I've done a good job, we're going to get into the book of Acts. We've only scratched the surface of Genesis. I've only minorly mentioned some really important examples, and I've completely leapfrogged over the, the entire center of history, Jesus Christ. Hopefully we'll talk more about him later. We will talk more about him later. Not hopefully, because I know we will. But here too in the book of Acts, God is building his temple to fill the whole earth, all of creation with his glory. Just like in Genesis, this creator spirit plays a key and vital role. The God-man, Jesus Christ, promises his disciples in Acts 1-5 that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, that's Acts 1-5. And that the Holy Spirit will be an empowerment to them. And that's Acts 1-8. And, and I think what he means here is that they will be given, they'll be given power to perform signs and wonders. They will do miraculous things akin to those performed by Jesus himself. And this will be Jesus' way to say, these are my people. They are doing what I was doing. They are mine and I am theirs. And it will serve as a witness to who Jesus is and what he has done as the perfect image bearer of God. The Holy Spirit will be their power. And this promise of Jesus is then quickly fulfilled in Acts 2. Where the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles in a manner reminiscent of his descent upon the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. Just look at Exodus 13.21 or 1 Kings 8.10 where there is rushing wind, there is loud noise, there is the house being filled, and fire, all depicting the presence and inbreaking of the very kingdom of God that was there in Genesis 1-2. In fact, this temple-making activity follows the apostles as they spread the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the second part of Acts 1-8. So Acts 2 is this temple making in Jerusalem. We're pretty familiar with that. Acts 8, especially verses 14 through 17, is a temple making in Samaria. Acts 10, 44 through 48, is the first temple making among the Gentiles and incur occurs in Caesarea with Cornelius, right? The centurion of the Italian cohort, or Italian, depending on your accent. And Acts 19, 1 through 7, is a sec we haven't gotten there yet, but we will, is the second temple making at the ends of the earth in the city of Ephesus. That one includes uh, Paul. So Paul, Paul is, is shown in Acts 19 
as, as an apostle who also has this, this temple-making following him around as he's spreading the gospel. Another sign that his gospel is also the gospel. So it is critical to note here that these descents of the Holy Spirit have both a personal and a corporate characteristic. They're both intensely personal, but they always happen in a group of people. They are personal because the tongue of fire represents the filling of the Holy Spirit. And Acts 2-3 says uh, that this Holy Spirit, this fire, appeared to them and rested on each of them. The Spirit touched each of them individually. The Spirit of God dwells in Christians personally and individually. He is our personal God. But but this then creates a congregation that is not tied to a single place of assembly. If God is with us, he's not here necessarily in this building. He is with us. And so we're not like like a a static temple or a static tabernacle that is situated in a single place. But instead, we can worship anywhere. As Matthew 18.20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's why the church is called the gathering place. Because it's where we come together to worship the Most High God. There is the church. John 4, 23 through 24 says, But the hour is coming, and now is, where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That comes to us as John is talking with a Samaritan woman about the proper place to worship. But we have to remember as well, in in addition to being personal, the temple-making activity of the Spirit has a corporate dimension as well. The church, technically speaking, is a dwelling place of the Spirit. And it is when we, two or three of us, come together that the temple of God, that glory-filled dwelling with men, God himself place, is this place today with us here, now, Sunday morning is one of those places. Sunday morning serves to us as a foretaste of what is to come. As we sing to our creator, we are practicing for eternity. As we explore the depths of God's word, drawing treasures that fuel our love, spark our insight, and cement our devotion, we are experiencing heaven on earth as his peace or joy, or patience, or kindness, or faithfulness, or gentleness, or self-control, or love, find their expression in our life, we reach forward and lay hold of future reality. Heaven makes its way here on earth. The kingdom of God has come near to us. But where this all happens might be some other place. We're at some other time in our life. But the church, the assembly, the congregation is not bound by walls or building or space. The earth is ours to fill. And we can go anywhere as long as we go together. This new transitory temple is uniquely equipped to transcend the barriers of human culture and carnal divisions. One of the great signs of Pentecost 
and these other temple-making events in Acts was the speaking of tongues. Acts 2.5 continues, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the great multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speaking in his own language. This happens in the other temple-making as well. And so it is as though the Spirit of God, through this miraculous and powerful sign, is saying to the world, he's declaring it today, yesterday, and forever through his living word, that the multiplication of tongues and cultures that occurred after the flood in Babel, remember that story where God takes one people who know all know the same languages and scatters them? That curse of God has been overcome and will continue to be overcome in the church. This is a place for the unity of the nations, for their healing. And through our coming together by the Spirit in Christ, the Lord is saying to us, his people, his church, what he said about Babel. But he's saying it positively this time. In Genesis eleven six, it says, Behold, they are one people, which we are. And they all have one language, which we do in the Spirit. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, because it is only the beginning of what we will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Paul might have said it this way in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And Jesus, as reported to us in Matthew 21.22, may have said, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And since Pentecost, the realities of heaven and riches of heaven, the personal presence of God and all the accoutrements of eternity have begun within the church of God. Through Jesus and by the Spirit, we begin our participation in these heavenly realities here and now, today. The joys of heaven, the presence of Jesus, the comfort of his kindness, the power of his person, the wisdom of his knowledge, the effectiveness of his intercessions, the freedom of his commandments, the liberation of his yoke, the rest of his enthronement, and the healing of his holiness are all made available to us today. Just as Paul says in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so, church, as we think about this city in which we live, this place that we call home, this is a place for us to take the temple of God and move it another inch. This is a place where there's darkness today, but there could not be darkness tomorrow if the Spirit of God wills. And I want us to see the backdrop of our lives, how we live and work here in Rock Hill, how we do what we do every day, Upon the reality that God is building his temple to fill this place. To fill all of creation with his glory. And I don't want that to feel like a burden to us. I don't want it to feel like a weight. Because, because God is going to do it in us. God is the one who will make it happen. God is the one who will supply all of our needs. God is the rich one. We are the poor one. And we come to him as beggars all, right? And we ask for God to supply. 
We step out in faith believing that God will do things through us. Not because we're good. Not because we know. Not because we have it all together. But because God will not be thwarted. God will not abandon us. He may not supply everything that we want. He may not give us exactly what we think we need. But God will always accomplish his mission. And he wants to do it in us and through us and by us. And that's a beautiful thing. We get to know God in a way we would never get to know as we participate in his mission for us. We get to be with God in a way that we would never get to be. The Hebrews tells us to go outside the gate with Jesus and to suffer with him there. There are things that we will know about our Savior if we just go and obey. If we go when it's hard. And I'm not saying do everything that feels really hard, but I'm saying obey the voice of God. If you know he's asking you to do something, I beg you to do it. Not because uh, anything bad, but because of the joy that you will receive. Because of the hope that you will be filled with. Because of the peace that will cover everything that happens to you. If you imagine Paul, just for a second. Paul was a normal guy, really smart, but normal guy. And he went through terrible things. Terrible things. But he didn't stop. And why would he not stop? What kept him going day in and day out on his mission? On what God had called him to do? We're not Paul. We're not called the same way as Paul is. But we all have a mission. And what keeps us on that mission is is that God has promised to be our God. And he has promised that we would be his people. That is what is going on. And so if you are like Jesus, you will use these newfound riches, this power to ask and receive, to work toward the establishment of the temple of God. So that the whole earth, all of creation, might be filled with his glory. Let's pray. God, we, we are grateful. We are so grateful that you have a specific plan for each of us. And that plan isn't magic. It's not something that we have to... Um, try to discern, roll the dice for, but we can know that it is. We can know that you are near to us, that your spirit is leading and guiding us as your people to be your people, that he is filling us to make us your temple, that he is cleansing us of all our sickness and all of our disease And all of the sin that so easily entangles and hinders us. That your spirit, even when we don't know it, even when we can't sense it, is about his work in us to make us your children and to seal us for eternity. And that promise is sure. That promise is forever. And there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from that. And so, Lord, we beg you, We beg you to do that work in us. We love you so much, God. And we want to see your name high and lifted up. We want everyone to be singing your praises. We want this world of peace 
to be the world that we live in today. We want the enmity to end. We want the hostility to be over. And we want your spirit to be among us. Do that in us, Lord, please. Amen.